Luke 8, 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Jo- uh, Mary, just by the way, a lot of people um, mistakenly claim that Mary Magdalene was the, prof- uh, the prostitute, rather, in the previous chapter. She, she was most likely not. Like, there's no indication of that. Um, we have here then uh, Joanna, who was one of the women who came to Jesus' tomb on Easter Sunday. And then the, lastly, Susanna, whom we know nothing about. Uh, but she's there, and, and many others, it says, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So they were the, you know, the benefactors. They were the patrons of Jesus and his disciples. It's, interestingly enough, just, you know, nowhere in the entire Bible is a woman ever described as Jesus' enemy. You know, all of them were men. I don't know what you're supposed to make of that, but <laughs> nowhere in the Gospels are the women enemies. They're... Uh, they're actually benefactors. Uh, well, while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let them hear. When his his disciples asked him what this parable meant, and he said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that, and he's quoting here Isaiah 6, 9, though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Well, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are, those, are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it it seemed just like any other ordinary morning in Washington, D.C., especially at the subway station with the hustle and the bustle of the early morning commuters, you know, all rushing by. At this particular subway stop, uh, people were you know, walking through the turnstiles very quickly, uh, cramming themselves into the trains, uh, squeezing themselves through the doors, and uh, trying to get as many people in the trains as possible. 
there was a street performer there in the, tr- in the subway stop um, just to the side, a- as there normally are, uh, a street busker unpacking his violin and getting ready to play, except this was no ordinary violinist. How many of you have heard this before? Yeah, this was Joshua Bell. And this was 2007 when Joshua Bell was at the height of his prowess. He's, he was one of the greatest violinists in the world at that time. Uh, only three nights earlier, he had played at uh, Symphony Hall in Boston. The tickets for that concert were uh, several hundred dollars apiece. Uh, Joshua Bell, he, he would fill up symphony halls all over the world. Well, the Washington Post in 2007 came up with this social experiment, grand social experiment they were going to try. Uh, and have Joshua Bell play at the subway. So there he is. Um, and, and it's no ordinary violin he was pulling out of his case as the people scurried by him headed to work. No, it was a, ni- a 1713 Stradivarius you know, from the golden era of violin making worth a cool $3.5 million. It was no ordinary music that he was playing in the hustle and bustle of the morning commute. It was some of the most glorious music ever written and some of the hardest pieces that had ever been composed. And this whole social experiment was designed to find out who's going to stop and listen. So they interviewed the director of the Washington Symphony prior to this, and they asked him, what are, you, what are your predictions? What do you think is going to happen? And he said, yeah, I think most people will probably you know, scurry by, but they'll probably, there may be maybe 75 to 100 pe- people who will stop and who will gather and who will listen. Do you remember how many actually did? Seven. Over the course of an hour, only seven people stopped to listen to Joshua Bell as he played. And I, I've told that story before, so I know some of you are familiar with it. Uh, it's really the perfect introduction to Jesus' teaching in parables. Because Jesus' parables are, are like Joshua Bell at the subway. Why does Jesus teach? And we all know that, or if you're familiar at all with Jesus, his preferred teaching method is through these, these riddles, these stories, these parables. Why does he teach this way? And why does he quote Isaiah 6-9 as he did in the middle of the passage? You know, I remember the very first time I studied this, I studied verse 10 and the Isaiah quotation about Jesus speaking in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. I was a, a freshman at the University of Oklahoma. We were doing something with the Baptist Student Union, a three-day conference at a retreat center just to the east of the campus. And we came to the, the you know, parable of the sower and this quotation from Isaiah and the five or so of us who were broken up in our small group, we were perplexed. Why would Jesus say this? Why, would, why does, does Jesus not want everybody to understand? <laughs> Doesn't he want everybody to comprehend? Well, yes, yes, and no. It's Joshua Bell of the subway. See, one person stops for a second, and he listens to Jesus, and he says, these words they are too confusing. These are riddles and crossword puzzles. I don't have time for this. And they quickly move away. Another person is feverishly jotting down all that Jesus is teaching with the hopes of later entrapping him by his words. 
But that guy who is like a reporter trying to trap him, he's, he's thinking, Jesus is so evasive. Why doesn't he just come out and say what he means? Well, there's a reason he speaks in parables, isn't it? It's to avoid being entrapped by his enemies. And that's a major theme going on in the gospel. But then there, there's a lady who's on the front row getting to hear him t- teach. And when she hears Jesus Uh, She stops and she listens, and hundreds of new and interesting questions begin to pop into her mind. Uh, This lady has never been so intrigued when she's listened to somebody in many years. There's something about his teaching uh, that is inviting, and yet she doesn't understand all of it. It's a little confusing. So what does she do? At the end, when the, the crowd has begun to disperse, she joins the small circle of disciples who are gathered around him. And it's in that capacity, it's in that context that he speaks to them. Not in parables anymore, no, but as a friend. Not in the booming voice of a preacher out grandstanding, but as, as a friend to a friend. And, and that, I think, is what's going on in parables. Parables are designed to get a person to stop, listen, and move toward Jesus. Draw closer to Jesus because it is only in the presence of Jesus are you able to get, you know, the the true meaning and the true understanding on what it is that he's trying to say. Uh, Those people whose hearts are hard or those people who are just too busy, those people who are looking to entrap him, they never understand because they never stop and draw near. And in that sense, It is a form of judgment, like Isaiah's ministry in Isaiah 6-9, speaking to a people whose hearts are hard. But if your heart is receptive, it'll draw you closer to Jesus for more. Um, kind uh, Kind of like Joshua Bell in the subway. We'll return to him at the end of the sermon. Let's look at the parable itself. Verse Verse 5. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who went out to sow his seed. Now, this is one of Jesus' most famous parables. It's oftentimes referred to as the parable of the sower. It's really better titled the parable of the soils and of the seed uh, because the emphasis is on on the receptivity of the soil to, to the seed. Uh, and uh, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who goes out to sow seed. And, and there are a lot of people in his audience who were thinking, seed, that's not, seeds are not how kingdoms come. Uh, we don't want a seed. <laughs> we want nitroglycerin. <laughs> we want dynamite. We, we want a Messiah to gather a great army and lead Israel in conquest. Uh, kingdoms don't come as farmers rhythmically throwing their or swinging their arms to and fro. Kingdoms normally come by force, you know, by means of force of arms and coercion. And I think I've said before, like if Alexander the Great brings his kingdom to your village, at the end of the day, you don't have a lot of choice in the matter. <laughs> you're either, at the end of the day, you're either going to be a part of his kingdom, or you're going to be dead. Uh, You don't have any choice. But Jesus says, no, no, no. The the kingdom of heaven, my kingdom, is not the kingdom. uh, It's not like that. It's not a boulder. It's not dynamite. It's not nitroglycerin. Uh, And I think that some of the ugliest periods in church history have been when the church has forgotten this. 
when we thought that the kingdom is the kingdom of the boulder, um, the Crusades, the Inquisition, the conquistadores, right? Uh, even, I think a case could be made that even when the church has tried to take hold, grab hold of political power, it's really us functioning as the kingdom of the boulder, not as the kingdom of the seed. But no, he says the kingdom, my kingdom is coming into this world by hearing the word of God. By just, it, it comes very gently, really. I mean, I can, you can hardly think of anything more gentle than a, a sower just casting out seed that just gently falls onto the ground and gets worked into the soil. My kingdom comes by hearing the word of God. And if this seed my words find the right soil in any human heart. Um, it's not going to form a fortress of boulders. It's going to form a garden. That's the image. It's going to flourish organically in good soil. So let's look at briefly now then at each of these soils. That's normally how the passage is preached. You go through each soil and kind of analyze the characteristics of each of the soils. We'll do that right now. Just, but, but it's very important to recognize that seeds take time, right? Seeds have to be cultivated. Seeds have to be nourished. Seeds do not provide instantaneous change. But seeds, if they are allowed to germinate and grow, bring beautiful change, uh, lasting change, so long as they're buried in the right soil. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, what is, what's the soil of my heart? I, I, I've, read, I've read different interpretations, more sophisticated interpretations of Jesus' parable of the sower. Some guys like to do some really wild typology of how each of the soils represent different periods in Israel's history. And you can go through. I, I really think um, the simplest interpretation is the best. He, he's just, he just wants to deal with the soil of your heart. And so let's do that. The first soil is obviously the hard ground. The ground that has been compacted. Uh, Jesus could have probably told this parable and be looking at a footpath that stretched right through the middle of a field. You know, a footpath would have been compacted down because of all the feet that had passed over it. Uh, very hard for the, for the seed to get into the soil and germinate uh, and embed there. And very easy for the seed to be stolen away uh, by birds, and as Satan is pictured here. I think that uh, one of the people that this describes uh, is uh, those who have been hardened by life. Those who have been just beaten down and compacted by life. And we know this is how life works. Every difficulty that comes into our lives has the potential to harden us, doesn't it? It has the potential to, to compact us. Um, we have to play the cards that we are dealt in this life. And many times those, are, those cards are not very good. And we can get, you know, beaten down um, and think, well, God wasn't there for me when I was going through this trial, so why should I care about God now? And the, the devil has a very easy way of coming and stealing away the word that he's trying to sow inside of us. But it doesn't have to be that way. So let me tell you, I have a, a, quite a few stories this morning. And then here's one woman's story. And I think you may be able to relate to this story. Um, here's what she says. My parents divorced when I was two. And when I was five, my younger brother was diagnosed with a brain tumor. 
He spent a lot of time in the hospital, and because of this, my parents had to spend most of their time with him, and, you know, I as a child did not get much of their attention. Then my sister was born uh, when I was seven, and she was born with water on her brain, which caused a great deal of disabilities, and so she was in and out of the hospital, and, um, you know, my parents, they had to attend to the other kids. And I was mad at God. I was mad at him giving me such a hard childhood and not protecting me from the pain and suffering that I experienced. And then I attended Catholic high school for, school for 13 years, and I learned a lot about God, and uh, I learned a lot about God that I didn't like. The final straw came when I was age 16, and a nun told me that I was not recognized in the eyes of God because my parents had divorced and had gotten, received an annulment. Um, I suffered serious depression, had violent mood swings, used drugs, used alcohol, and basically lost all respect for myself. She goes on, It had been so long since I had been open to hearing God's voice that I didn't recognize it at first. What was that voice? I was invited to attend church by several Christian friends, and I absolutely hated it. I, I could never pinpoint what I didn't like about it, but I, I didn't want to go back. Yet I had this relationship with these Christian friends. Um, and it was like through these people, God continued to pursue me. Um, and, and eventually I went back to church and gradually began to accept that it wasn't as bad as I wanted it to be. <laughs> there was a sermon the pastor preached about forgiveness. And uh, when, he, when I heard the word of the forgiveness of the cross, it was almost like I could feel Jesus holding my hand during that sermon and encouraging me to just let it all go. I sat at the back of the church that day, sobbing through the entire sermon as each word felt as if it was directed towards me. And what Jesus was calling me to do uh, was to receive his forgiveness and to extend his forgiveness. And that night, I think I was saved. I was, I was saved by Jesus. And I was able to let go of the anger and the hurt that I had been harboring for so many years. It's a beautiful story. And you look, you hear her, you, hear her, you, you think she should have been as hard as concrete. She would have probably been as hard as concrete if it weren't for a certain plow that was brought into her life, you know, that broke up that hard soil. And what was the plow? It was, through, it was just the love of Christian friends. I truly, I mean, I know there are different ways that God plows us, but probably the most consistent and beautiful way is if you, if you love another person along the lines of 1 Corinthians 13, if you really do that to them, um, it'll answer so many, I mean, they may have all these intellectual questions about Christianity, but really it's just your love that breaks up the soil and, and makes it ready for the seed. And she got to hear the, hear the seed, receive the seed at church. Um, so that's the first soil. Um, the second soil is variously translated in different translations as rocky soil, but it, uh, that's a little bit of a misnomer because it's not a soil that has lots of rocks in it. It's a soil that has bedrock 
right underneath the topsoil. So maybe a limestone layer right underneath the few inches of topsoil. You reach the bedrock, the limestone, and the soil isn't deep enough to sustain life in the desert sun. It's too shallow. It doesn't have enough moisture. And so when the sun comes up, then it ends up, you know, just eviscerating the plant and it, and it dies. Who do you think that type of soil describes? I think it can describe people who um, had, they had an emotional conversion experience. They had a powerful first initial meeting with Jesus. You know, uh, they walked the aisle at the end of the sermon. They prayed the sinner's prayer. They signed their name on the bottom of the card. They did all of that, but they never, they never developed roots. They never studied God's word. They never got into community. They never developed deep friendships and accountability. And so, um, yeah, they just never developed the roots. I also think it can describe, I mean, it can describe lots of different people, but I think it also describes people who come to God for the wrong reasons. If you come with the wrong motivations and the wrong reasons, you're probably not going to develop deep roots. Uh, Classic example of this, uh, Joel Osteen. Your Best Life Now sells millions and millions of copies. Don't recommend. We don't have that at at our book table, by the way. (laughs) And I don't recommend that you read it. But the very first chapter of the book, he tells a story about a modestly successful man who saw a large mansion while he was vacationing in Hawaii. And he said to himself, I'll never live in a place that great. So Joel Osteen writes, As long as you can't imagine it, As long as you can't see it, then it's not going to happen for you. You've got to have faith. The man correctly realized that his own thoughts and attitudes were condemning him to mediocrity. And he determined through faith, then and there, to start believing better of himself and believing better of God. And so he goes on, you know, see your business taking off. See your marriage restored. See your family prospering. See your dreams coming to pass. This image has to become part of you in your thoughts, your conversations, deep down in your subconscious mind, in your actions, in every part of your being. You have to believe that God will make this happen. Okay. What happens when it doesn't? What happens when it doesn't? And when the sun comes out (laughs) and there's not much much moisture in the topsoil, you're going to be burned to a crisp. It's... It's people who come to Christianity primarily hoping that God will be a sugar daddy. And, and then things don't end up working the way they wanted them to work in their life. It's like, what use is Christianity? What use is Jesus Christ if I don't get these things? If you come to God looking for a self-help guru, and um, you're not going to be able to take the heat. And so I think, yes, there are some who have shallow ground, um, whose roots are not deep enough to, ha- to take the heat of the sun. I don't want to you know, point the finger just at him. Because, uh, yeah, I, that sounds like a, a pretty... Um, uh, I don't know. I just think that we probably do that same stuff, just in a little more theologically sophisticated kind of way. You know, we come to God... For, for wrong motivations, and uh, it's maybe not as blatantly shysterish as Joel Osteen, but we have to be careful. Um, am I making my roots go down deep? Number three, 
The third soil is the weed-infested soil, the thorn-infested soil. The third soil comes with the frustrating reality that plants never grow as fast as weeds. (laughs) Weeds, if they're there, they will proliferate. And if they're not removed, they will grow up. They will trap the sunlight and keep the plant from budding. And Jesus interprets this soil as the American soil, right? He says this soil is the soil where you're consumed by life's worries, and we are, and life's riches, we are, and life's pleasures. We're so preoccupied by worries, riches, and pleasures. The uh, German poet Rilke once went to a museum and was dazzled by an ancient statue of Apollo that he saw in the museum. And he came home afterwards and he wrote in his diary these words. He wrote simply, I must change my life. He didn't write, wow, what a great aesthetic experience, though it was a great aesthetic experience. He wrote a poem with that phrase in it, I must change my life. I want you to consider this. Isn't it true that anything that deeply touches you, like any any experience of true beauty, Anything that gets really deep down inside of you, into your center, it has this strange effect on us. It makes you aware of the fact that you are but a shadow of the person you ought to be. Haven't you ever experienced that before? Like, it's like, I know I need to change my life after having experienced that, after having seen that. I know that I, I am a shadow of what I ought to be. And Why? Because the weeds are choking us to death. (laughs) You know, the the weeds are choking every bit of spiritual life out of me. We will have these moments, these epiphanies from time to time that I must change. And yet then we go and try to change. We're never very effective on it, um, instituting that change, right? Why? Because we try to change on our own. And we don't usually try to change in community with other people that are there walking with us through it, giving us accountability, giving us wisdom and guidance. So most of our efforts to change, they fail. They fail because we're trying to do it on our own. But that's what Christian community is for. And then fourthly and finally, the good soil, the, heart, the, the fruitful soil. And you'll notice there is a progression in these from soil to soil. The first, it never took root at all. The second... It started, but it died. The third survived, but it never produced. It was eventually choked out. And the fourth is what God, our Heavenly Father, Jesus, the great gardener, it's what Jesus is after in us. It's a harvest. He's after a a bountiful harvest. He says, it, he says it in terms of a hundredfold harvest. At their day, the typical uh, agricultural year, yields were like 10 to 15 uh, fold. 100 fold is huge. And that is what he envisions in your life and in the life of the Christian community. Uh, this huge, bountiful harvest. And I think we, we certainly live for something much smaller than that. As Shelton said, The purpose of our lives is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever, and to bear 
a hundredfold harvest of fruitfulness. And I think you and I go, go to work on Monday morning, and we just don't do it in those, with that category in mind, do we? And we really don't think the purpose of my life today is to glorify God, enjoy God, and bear a hundredfold harvest everywhere, every day, everyone I meet with. So I heard a Christian guy, this is a, is it my last story? Might be my last story. I heard a Christian guy this week describe going to McDonald's and being in line at McDonald's for 20 minutes, which completely defeats the purpose of going to McDonald's, right? You don't go to McDonald's for the cuisine. You go for the speed. You want to get your food fast. And now he's in line for 20 minutes, which that's a freakishly long amount of time to spend at McDonald's. And he's frustrated and he's wondering, what in the world is taking so long? Well, he, he looks, he steps forward and he sees, he realizes the lady at the counter taking the orders can't understand what other people are ordering. She's messing up all of the orders and she's slowing everything down. And so he's like, corporate America, they don't do anything right. They don't have a good screening program. They have inept employees. All these thoughts are going through his head. Um, I'm sure they wouldn't go through our heads, but (laughs) he steps a little closer and he realizes the reason she can't understand the orders is because she speaks terrible English. She is a non-native English speaker and she is not very equipped in English. And he's, where does his mind go then? (laughs) U.S. immigration policy. What's our country coming to? No one speaks the language anymore. At 20 minutes in line at McDonald's will make anyone go crazy. But he's a Christian, and the word has been planted in him. And suddenly he remembers the book of Exodus, where God says to Israel, Israel, I'm going to take you into a promised land. And when you're in that land, there will be strangers and foreigners and aliens who will come into your land. And you know how I want you to treat them? In your new land, which is, you know, a picture of God's salvation, I just want you to treat them really well. That's what God said to Israel in the Exodus. I want you to love them and care for them. Why? Because you were an alien in Egypt before I saved you. And I watched over you and I protected you and I cared for you. I watched over you and so you are to watch over them. The the word had been planted and all of a sudden, bam, everything changes in that minute. And he's kind of brought back to his senses. Instead of all the frustration and I... He's brought back to us in senses. What is the purpose of my life? The purpose of my life is to love this woman that is right there in front of me. She has been put in my path so I can love her with the love that I have received from God in Jesus Christ. So that when I get up to the counter, I give this woman a smile and I, I speak some words of, uh, I just practice indiscriminate love because that is exactly what the seed that has been nourished and cultivated will do. So when we talk about the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God, the the savior king who has come, who's paid the penalty for your sins on the cross, has been resurrected from the dead to free you from your previous slavery. Um, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God it is the power of God. It, it, he does not say that it, it, it's, uh, it results in power. He says, no, it is the power of God. The power of God for life. The verbal power of God for life in the lives 
of those who have ears to hear. So do you have ears to hear? Uh, that's what challenged me this week is like, like how much am I on a daily basis? How much are you on a daily basis? Like having ears to hear the words of Christ um, and like taking that seed and, and planting it deep inside your soul at the beginning of your days. Do I have ears to hear? Um, at the end of Joshua Bell's one hour outside the subway, so he had, you know, this, the violent case was open. He's street busing. Uh, he, he received $32.17. $32.17. And only seven people, as I said, of the thousands who passed by, seven people stopped to listen. But there, there was a Washington, uh, Washington Post reporter who was kind of watching the whole thing. And it, this is what he noted. Quote, every single time a child walked past, the child, he or she tried to stop and watch and listen. And every single time a child uh, tried to stop, a parent scooted the kid away. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Isn't it funny? Because Jesus tells, tells you, you got to have the faith of, of a child. Um, and so what... Uh, I don't know. I guess it would be to really listen to him every day and and to pray through this parable for your own life, to pray that if you have suffered pain and and, and disappointment and you've gone through terrible trials, to pray that God would break up that soil, uh, to pray that the devil's plan to steal the word away from you would not have any success, it would be foiled, uh, to pray that your roots would go down deep into the gospel, Um, and to pray that the weeds and the thorns would be pulled out of the garden, and to pray that you, this day, would patiently and perseveringly be a hundredfold uh, fruitful person. May God make it so. Amen.